This morning, as we have mentioned for the last few weeks, and including this morning, we launch into a new series called God's Story, Our Story, where we will do a major in-depth survey of the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And we're actually not going to start in Genesis chapter 1 this morning, and there is a reason for that. I felt like it would be only appropriate to take a passage to help us understand the reason and the rationale and to build a sense of urgency on why we would take so much time in discovering such a phenomenal book. So we're actually going to begin our our journey together by looking at Psalm 19 verses 7 through 14. Psalm 19 verses 7 through 14. I cannot think of a better passage in such a short passage that it is uh, that really emphasizes and builds the case for the perfection and the power and the goal of God's word from beginning to end. I know for many of you, the thought of studying and reading the Bible is intimidating. And the reason it's intimidating, it also leads us to that place of often ignoring and neglecting God's word. For many of us, we don't even understand what it means or what it says. For some of us, the Bible is like getting the terms and conditions at the end of a software download, and you're scrambling to find the accept all button. Wouldn't it be easy if we could just say, I accept it all? That's not the way it is. For some of you, you've had great intentions of reading the Bible. Maybe at the beginning of a new year, and you started a Bible study reading plan, much like we are starting as a church this week. And you do well at the beginning of the Bible. And then you get to First Chronicles, and you read Shazam, Begat, McKizzle, and then it all just fizzles out in the end. We all have great intentions. But my goal is this, through all of the stories and seeming confusing characters and names and themes and dates and ideas from Genesis to Revelation, my goal is every week and through the course of this series to show you there is ultimately one story from beginning to end. And when you understand that story, It makes all of the other stories make sense. You will not understand the story of your life and the story of this world and everything in it, the good and the bad, until you understand the story of all stories, the story of God from Genesis to Revelation. So let's begin our study and our journey together by looking at this psalm from King David, which impresses upon us the perfection and the power and the goal of the Word of God. Psalm 19, beginning in verse 7, says this, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. 
The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them is there a great reward." Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And on this Lord's day, the grass continues to wither and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord, it stands forever. Amen. The word of God, two testaments, old and new, 40 authors, 66 books, 1,663 commands, 3,237 different characters, 31,102 different verses written in narratives, prophecy, epistles, and poetry written by kings and prophets and scholars and peasants and fishermen and tent makers. Yet in all the commands and all the characters and all the stories and all the genealogies and all the dates and all of the numbers, there really is just one story the story begin, that begins in the garden in the beginning and ends with the final amen in the city, gar, the garden city of God in Revelation. And it is that one story, the story of God, as I said, that will allow us and only allow us when we understand that one story of God from beginning to end that will help us make sense of all other stories. So what does Psalm 19 do to impress upon us the sense of urgency for being a church equipped and diving into the very Word of God? What does Psalm 19 this morning tell us about the Word of God? The first thing that we see in Psalm 19 is we see the perfection of the Word of God. We see the perfection of the standard of the Word of God. In verses 7 through 9, King David wants to impress upon us the perfection of this Word, unlike any other Word. And what he does in verses 7, 8, and 9 is he uses a series of adjectives to describe how perfect this Word is. I want you to follow along with me, and I want you to underline these words. The law of the Lord is first perfect. He says it's perfect. Perfection there in the Hebrew means flawless, without any flaw, without any blemish. The word, the law of the Lord is perfect. It is flawless. But then he goes on, another adjective. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Sure there means trustworthy. It means that you can approach God's word every week and every day and know that it is trustworthy. So it is perfect, meaning flawless. It is sure, meaning trustworthy. But he doesn't end there with the adjectives. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord, they are right. And now let me just pause there. Underline that word right. That does not just mean uh, this is right and that is wrong. 
In fact, the word right there means straight edge. Like a straight edge, a carpenter or a cabinet maker or somebody in the field of construction would use. It is a straight edge, meaning not only is the word of God right, but it is the right standard by which everything is measured up against. So that we as Christians, particularly here at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, need to understand that the reason our only rule of faith and practice is the Word of God is because it is the straight edge of God in which we measure every single thing in life, every decision, every commitment, every activity, every stage of life is measured against this straight edge, which is the Word of God. It doesn't end there, though. He says it's perfect and sure and right. And he goes on in verse 8. Underline this word. The commandment of the Lord is pure. Verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean. The word of God is pure and clean. It's speaking to the holiness of God. That this word holy is set apart. It is unlike any other word. And what actually this word does for us is it paints a picture for us of the holiness and the purity and the cleanliness of God. That he is all together clean and holy and set apart. This is what David is attempting to do. And then lastly, the last adjective he uses at the end of verse 9, he says, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, meaning that you cannot separate the word of God and say, this word is true and that word isn't. There is not one part portion of holy scripture altogether, David is saying, it is true and it is righteous. The word righteous altogether means altogether utterly dependable. That there is not one word that we cannot depend upon for life and for flourishing and for understanding how we are to live in this world. And so what David is trying to do here is emphasizing using all of these adjectives to describe the perfection and the sure promise of God's word, the trustworthiness of the word and the dependability of the word so that we would understand that that, this is why at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, this is our highest standard. Why at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, we make such a priority and investment in equipping you in the Word of God. It's why here at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, we talk so much about having a biblical worldview, that you will not be able to understand life and the world and everything in it without having a robust lens in which you see everything, that you see what is right and what is wrong, what is beautiful, what is moral, and how I direct my life. Listen to me very clearly. God has spoken. This is not something to fool around with. God has spoken through his word and we have his word from Genesis to Revelation and it is not your job to judge the word of God. It is the word of God's job to judge you and to expose you and to heal you, to rescue you and to point you on the way in which you are to live your life. The word of God from beginning to end is perfect in every way. 
So we not only see in Psalm 19 the perfection of God's word, but the second thing that we see is also the power of the word of God. It is perfect and it is right, but we see the power of the word of God. In 7 and 8, if the perfection of God's word was seen in the adjectives, we can see the power of God's word in the verbs that David uses. A little English lesson here for us as we take apart Psalm 19. But we see the power of God's word by the verbs that David uses in verses 7 and 8. Let's take those apart together. What does the word of God have the power to do? Verse 7, it says it has the power to revive the soul. Why does our soul need to be revived. Well, if you remember from our heaven series, I took an entire week to explain the soul. Remember, the soul is the non-physical part of your being. It's your emotions, it's your will, it's your dreams, it's your desires, it's your fear, it's what makes you happy, it's what makes you sad. That is your soul. It's where you find your identity and your peace and your purpose and your calling in life. And what David is saying is the Word of God and the Word of God alone has the power to revive your soul, to revive that thing that has lost its focus, that has forgotten its identity. In Psalm 23, it actually says that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, that he restores my soul. The idea of reviving your soul here in Psalm 19 is the same practice of the Lord restoring your soul. You see, whether you realize it or not, you have a soul that needs to be restored. You have a soul that it's lost its identity in the garden. You have a soul that has given up in hope. You have a soul that is lost. You have a soul that has a misplaced uh, peace and a misplaced joy. And the whole idea of the Word of God is every day when we are feasting on this Word, it revives and it restores our soul. It restores our identity. And we understand that my identity is not defined by the world, but my identified is defined by my Good Shepherd. This is what the power of the Word of God has to do. Why would you not? want this to revive and restore your soul but what else does it do it not only revives the soul at the end of verse 7 it also says to make the wise making the wise uh, or making wise the simple David's calling you out there he's calling you all simple he is saying by nature you are simple minded how do you feel about that You see, what David is saying, and it says it all throughout the scripture, that as much as we think we are smart and have it all together and competent, what the word of God says, apart from the word of God, you are simple. You are simple-minded. Without the word of God, you are ignorant. Without the word of God, you are lost. Without the word of God, you might think on the outside you have it all together, but inside you are as lost as can be. And it is the word of God alone that not only has the power to revive your soul, but it has the power to make the make simple wise. To take your life and understand, as the scriptures say, the word is a what? A lamp unto your feet. Meaning that you don't have to go through life alone. You don't have to go through life wondering if this is true and this is right. You don't have to go through life lost. You don't have to go through light, life in darkness. That the word of God is truth and it is a light. It is a light and a lamp unto your path. It has the power to make wise the simple. 
The other thing it has the power to do, not only revive the soul and make wise the simple, but it also tells us at, in verse 8, it has the power to rejoice the heart. What? What has the power to rejoice the heart? This is interesting here. Don't miss this. In verse 8, it says the precepts of the Lord have the power to rejoice the heart. Wait a second. Precepts are the commandments. I thought the commandments of God were burdensome. Well, in Psalm 1, what do we read? In Psalm 1, we read... Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. You see, I can understand if David said the precepts or the commandments of the Lord are good and right, they help us in our society, they help us be civil with one another, but David says... They rejoice the soul. They rejoice the heart. In fact, he goes on in verse 10 to say, more desired than gold, more desired than even fine gold, sweeter than honey, like the drippings of a honeycomb. What is happening here? David is describing when the word of God comes into the life of an individual, it revives the soul and it makes simple, it makes wise the simple in such a way that it does a rewiring of the heart and it changes your motives. It changes your inner heart. This is called transformation of the soul and of the heart and of the mind. It's what theologians call sanctification. Less of myself and more of Jesus. What Jesus loves, I begin to love. What Jesus hates, I begin to hate. And that his law, his precepts, his commandments that were at one time a burden to us actually become the delight of our soul and of our heart. Why? Because the commandments and the precepts of God show us a beautiful picture of who God is. And David says, who would want to be robbed of that joy of seeing what God looks like? Who would want to be robbed of that joy of seeing Christ manifest in my life? Who would want to be robbed of that joy of seeing Jesus manifested in your life as well? This beautiful picture of the precepts and commandments of God changing the inner person and transforming us from the inside out. This is what the Word of God has the power to do. Reviving your soul, making wise the simple, rejoicing the heart. Now just a point of practical application for you this morning. One of the things I've been challenging myself to do, especially in light of this series, is the first thing I do and the last thing I do every day, meditating on the Word of God. Because here's the first and last thing I typically do, reach for the phone. Because God forbid I miss one text or one email or one social media post. Now, for some of you, you don't live your life on your phone, but the first thing you do on the, in the morning is turn on the news. For some of you, the first thing you do is read the newspaper, and I'm challenging you for this season, stop. If this is true, that the Word of God has the power to do this, why would this not be our first and last thing we do every day? In fact, Deuteronomy 6, Moses tells the parents to do what? As they're rising up and they're going down, meditate on what? On the Word of God, on the law of God. Why would we not? Listen to me. When is the last time you heard a person getting ready to die 
say, can you turn on SportsCenter one last time? Can you give me the Wall Street Journal? One more Instagram post. I just got to do it. I got to check out Facebook. When typically somebody is at the end of their life, what are they doing? Read me. Psalm 23. Would you read me Romans 8? It tells me neither death nor life nor anything would ever be able to separate me from the word of God. You always see what has the power and what is a priority at the end of a person's life. Nobody on their deathbed says, one more Facebook post. Turn on Fox News one more time. Nobody. What do they say if they have encountered the word of God? They say, give me the word. Give me the scriptures because I need it. So the perfection of the word of God, the power of the word of God, and then lastly for us this morning, the goal of the word of God. The goal of the word of God, after all, I did tell you that we would talk about what the main purpose and goal of scripture is from Genesis to Revelation. And you actually see the goal of all of scripture revealed in these verses, whether you realize it or not. And the goal of all of Scripture, the goal of the Word of God, is actually revealed in David's response to the Word of God. How does he respond? We see it in verses 11 through 14. When David encounters the Word of God, it produces a response. And what's the response? It's interesting. We see a conflict here. In verse 11, David, on the one hand, says this, Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is a great reward. David is saying in the scripture, when you all boil it down, there's blessings and curses. There's blessing and judgment. Right? In verse 11, David is simply saying, you obey the word of God, you get a reward. You disobey the word of God, you get the judgment. He's saying at the end of the day, that is the word of God. What, what I read in the scriptures. But then it goes further. And here's the real conflict for David. But in verse 12, he then goes, but who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. So on the other one hand, in verse 11, he goes, I get it. You obey the word of God, you get rewarded. You disobey the God, you get cursed. But then in verse 12 through 13, in a very transparent way, what is the word of God doing? It's exposing the real David. And he's going, when I see the word of God and read the word of God and encounter the word of God, I see all of my sin and all of my flaws. And there's no way I'll get that reward. And here is the goal of scripture. David's last response in verse 14. Look at it with me. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That one phrase in verse 14, brothers and sisters, is the goal of Scripture. To recognize when you encounter the word of God from Genesis to Revelation, that it is all pointing, that the Old Testament is pointing forward to a redeemer that would come and the New Testament is pointing back to the redeemer that has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, what David reveals is this. When he encounters God's word, David cannot help but say, there is a true and better David that is to come. David can't help but to say there is a greater servant that will come who fully understands the warnings, 
who fully understands obedience. There is a servant that is to come, and his name is Jesus Christ, who would take on the condemnation and judgment of God, and in return by faith in him, he would grant us the gift of eternal life forever and ever. You see, the only proper response, David says, David himself says it, the meditations of my heart and my mouth, the only thing that would be acceptable to come from my heart and my mouth is to recognize that there is a Redeemer that is to come. What David is acknowledging is that David is not the hero of his own story, but that Jesus is the hero of his story. What David is recognizing is that he is not the champion, but Christ is the champion. And this, my friends, brothers and sisters, is the ultimate goal of Scripture. When you truly encounter the Word of God, it exposes on the one hand your greatest need, and on the other hand it exposes and reveals your greatest hope. And from Genesis to Revelation, we are going to see this over and over again. This grand drama, this grand story of God rescuing his people, conforming them into his image, and setting them apart so that the whole world might know of this rock and of this Redeemer. There was a teenage girl by the name of Christina who grew up in a home with no faith background. Mom and dad didn't go to church didn't acknowledge Christianity or really any religion in their home. But Christina encountered some friends that went to this thing called youth group, went to this thing called a youth ministry where they went and they fellowshiped together and they went on mission trips and read the Bible. And Christina started to change. This teenage girl growing up in this non, this home with no faith and no religion. And the mom started to notice, quite suspect and skeptically, she started to notice the, the Christina wanted to keep going to church. And, and she wanted to go on these things called mission trips. And, and she wanted to actually read the Bible. In fact, Christina went to her mom and said, would you buy me a Bible? And so the mom doesn't know what to do with all this. Christina wants to start saying a blessing and a prayer before her meals. And so one evening after Christina had gone to bed, the mom, still full of such curiosity, wanders into Christina's room and picks up her new Bible. Christina's mom opens it up and realizes there's an old section and a new, test, uh, new section. I guess I'll start with the new section. That seems a little easier to understand. She begins at midnight reading the Gospel of Matthew. And it's in at 2.30 a.m. She gets to the Gospel of John. And on her knees, with tears rolling down her face, she reads that whoever places their hope and faith in the one, Jesus Christ, God gives them the right to be called a child of God. And at 2.30 in the morning in Christina's room, that mom puts her faith in Jesus Christ. And her life is forever changed. The only question I have for you this morning is how will you respond to the word of God? For some of you, this is the first time you've encountered the Word of God, and it seems daunting. And my prayer for you is that you would encounter the Word of God in such a way that you would respond like David, O oh Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. For some of you, you've been walking with Jesus for 20, 30 years, but it's been a while since you've picked up the Word of God. And I pray that you would feast on it once again then you would meditate it on it when you wake up and you would meditate on it as you go to bed. And that it would transform you 
and it would change you and that you would be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you would fall in love yet again with the Word of God in such a way that you would know it and love it and cherish it and memorize it and be obedient to it and follow its precepts all the day of your life. Regardless of where you are this morning, I pray that you, here at Coral Ridge, would commit yourself for the first time and commit yourself again, if that be your case, to encountering the rich Word of God so that you would be able to say, Jesus, you truly are, from beginning to end, my rock and my redeemer. I said it last week, and I'll say it again. The Word of God changed this world 2,000 years ago with the birth of the early church. The Word of God changed this world 500 years ago with the birth of the Protestant Reformation. 60 years ago, God changed this church through a commitment to the Word of God and evangelism. And by His grace and for His glory, I pray that God would change this church and its people and this community once again through the only power that has the hope to change lives forever. Would you commit with me today as we go into this journey to say, God, would you do it again? Would you take this word and impress it into our lives? Would you take this word and make me new? Would you take this word and transform our lives and our church and our homes and our families and our marriages that you would leave here this morning and saying, I gave up, Rob, but I'm not going to give up any longer. I gave up all hope on my marriage. I gave up all hope on my kids. I gave up all hope on my life and my sin and my holiness. I gave up all hope but not today because I believe the word of God can do it again and may he by his grace do it right here at Coral Ridge